This is Within and Between, a podcast about the methods and meta-science behind developmental science. Hi, it's Jessica Logan. And it's Sarah Hart. <laughs> And you can tell we were just laughing about a, a blooper cut that we just did. <laughs> Not, we just tried to do an intro and it wasn't our best. Um, and I think it's because we're both really excited to talk about this topic. Yes, you could say that. <laughs> Might be a little bit of an understatement. Um, I was saying to Sarah before we started, you know, uh, when we talked about making a podcast, mm-hmm. we generated a list of things to talk about to sort of whittle down and come up with exactly what we thought would comprise a podcast like this. Mm-hmm. And this was like the second thing we put on the list. It was really high. It was really high. And yet we continued to avoid it. And by we, I think I mean, I was like, I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready yet. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like a topic you're so passionate about. I know. I know. Uh, so the topic is uh, data management. So we're going to talk a little bit about managing data today. <laughs> I was just doing the background, like the the canned audience applause. <laughs> yes. So I think, I don't know why I've been so hesitant to talk about it. I think it's just because I really want to do it justice mm-hmm. and I want to do a good job with it. And I think it's so important and that's why. And we're all like, this is fun to talk about. I'm ready for it. I love all to right, talk about it. data management. What my experience has been, I've realized now that I got exceptionally good training in data management as a PhD student. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, it is just by chance. And I think that most people don't get that sort of training is what I've learned. Uh, we are definitely not training graduate students in my department on how to do it. Um, and I would say that I'm probably, even though I know good data management, I probably don't even purposely stop and make sure my graduate students know good data management. Um, yes, it's definitely not built into our training no. systems at all. And it doesn't have as natural of a place to build in as things like other open science practices, I think. Because if you're not part of a lab where active data collection is going on, you may not see your experience or have any opportunities to really get your hands around some data mm-hmm. uh, to give it a to give it a try and sort of see what it's all about. I'm going to be teaching a new grad class next year, uh, next fall, and um, I'm going to include it. I'm going to do it's like broadly professional development. A class like this doesn't exist in our department for the whole department. Um, so it would be kind of new and it, part of it's like traditional de- professional development topics, but I think like a whole series of open science practices, including data management, right? Because you make the point that data management, um, hasn't, it's, it's not really part of like the framework of open science. Goodness. Mm-hmm. I didn't mean to use the word framework there. We're not talking about OSF specifically, but, um, you know, it's not the, like, the practices that you can do, it's not often included in that, in those practices. Yeah, if you look at the data life cycle, sort of the the, the open data, open, sorry, <laughs> the open science life cycle, there's like, uh, they people will talk about, you know, looking for ideas, uh, designing your experiments, collecting data, analyzing data, storing data, interpreting your findings, but it sort of skips over the whole piece about actually managing it and thinking about that uh, in an active way. So data cleaning and data management. So we're going to use data management here mm-hmm. as this like umbrella term that overarches um, pieces like um, data cleaning, data collection, and data uh, documentation, essentially. Yeah. So that's what I'm talking about for data management. I would say it's it kind of sits on top and in between it, you know, you need to, th- we're going to talk about like, you need to think about data management before you collect your data, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, should be part of when you're doing, you know, submitting for your IRB or your ethics approval, you know, you should be thinking and setting up your data management process already. 
and then it carries you through your collection of your data, then through the storage of your data, um, and mm-hmm. then to analyzing your data. And then depending on your analytical pipeline, then probably until after you analyze your data. Absolutely. So I think um, one of the ways that I like to start talking about this is why should you care? Like, why is this a thing that we're talking about? Why are we passionate about it? Um, and I think the the reasons that I that I have sort of documented in our outline here is that the first one is more of an external motivation, which is just all of the federal grants that you're submitting to will ask you for a quote unquote data management plan. Mm-hmm. What goes into that data management plan is actually not very well defined. It's not. It's mostly like promise me that you're going to share your data when you're done. It's not ideal, but they do ask you to have some data management plans in place. Now, I don't know if you know this about me, Jess, but I write a beautiful data management plan. <gasps> do you? I do. Wow. All right, maybe we should have some examples. I do have a template out. I think it's out on Figshare of a good data management plan, according oh, to, awesome. to Sarah Hart. But that, you know. <laughs> <anyway>. <laughs> but it, incredibly, it doesn't even cover... It covers maybe 10% of the data management we're going to talk about today in the podcast. Right. I, most of them do. Because mm-hmm. when data management from a librarian's perspective, mm-hmm. which is a lot of where that idea came from, mm-hmm. is very different than the data management we're talking about yeah. today. So a lot more, uh, it's just a little bit different. So I think the the next piece I have here is that the nice thing about having a data management plan, like a, a good high quality data management solutions here is that you you will have a plan that will get your data ready to share publicly. Because we've talked before about the importance of sharing your data publicly. And a lot of people are pushing to have data get shared publicly. And it's a lot easier to share your data publicly if you have good data documentation and you've got and you've had good data management practices along the way. Oh, this might be a good opportunity to just quickly advertise the Logan Hart and Schatzenider paper that's uh, currently very recently in press at AERA Open on data sharing and everything you need to know about data sharing. Just a little. A little plug. Check it out. A little plug right there. Check it out. We'll uh, we'll pop the link in here if we can. (laughs) We we have it up on them as a preprint now um, as well. So if it's not open out at AERA Open, we'll we'll link you to the preprint at least. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's that's a we had a lot of fun writing that. Mm -hmm. I had a lot of fun writing that. Mm -hmm. Um, so then I guess the last piece of this is that, and, and I think the thing that we'll focus on the most today is that data management practices are really essential to making sure your data is high quality. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have high quality data, honestly, you have nothing. As we like to say around my shop, you have garbage in, garbage out. Do you know, it's funny, you know, I have this grant from the NIH to build a data repository to store the data mm-hmm. of developmental scientists and educational researchers. Uh, and the first round of reviews that we got um, from the panel for that grant before it was funded, it, uh, there were some considerable concerns about data quality and how we would ensure data quality. And we're like, it's not really, that's not really a role that a data repository can have, an open one, you know, a for many people to use because the data man- that data quality piece happens so much sooner than when we come into play as a data repository wh- where you store yeah. your final data. You know, it's like, well, they should have done that like three or four years ago before they started collecting their data to ensure that. Um, and it's really hard as somebody who's used other people's data that you were unsure about the initial data management practices. It's a lot of work if you don't set it up to begin with. Yes. And so uh, the exercise mm-hmm. that I would like to encourage our listeners, if you're not driving a car and you're not walking, maybe close your eyes. Ooh. If you're sitting around your house. Okay. Think about the most recent data set that you've used that you of data that you collected. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you're you know looking at maybe differences between two groups on something. If you were to hand that data to someone else, how much work would it take for you to be able to get that person to the place that they could run even a correlation analysis and know what in the world they were doing? I know my because answer. 
what's your answer? No, what? no you finish your thought. <laughs> no, I'm just going to say that for a lot of people, it's a lot. it would be nearly impossible. Yeah. It would be nearly impossible. You would have to sit down with someone for several hours and walk them through things, or you walk through them and you send them exact variable names for the things that you want them to run information on. And that's what we want to avoid. Because there, there can be no open science mm-hmm. if we don't know what the variables are. And I will say a lot of people that I talk to when I'm trying to encourage data sharing, um, I, a hurdle for many people, if they buy into, you know, and buy into the practice in general, by far and away, the hurdle that you hear over and over again is I don't have time to get my data to be a place into a place that I can share it. Mm. And then I'm like, wow, how are you using that data right now? I mean, even on your own laptop, in your own group. like. Mm-hmm. But, you know, other than probably pretty specific shops, like big, big labs or big lab groups going for really big grants, do people start to think about having a data management person around even, somebody who has this expertise You know, even like a one-off PI, I think somewhere getting an IES grant, getting an NIH grant, you know, getting a federal grant is likely not budgeting for that type of person and uh, doesn't have that type of person around for most places. You need centers, you need groups of people around that. And then normally that kind of kicks in, you have that expertise around. And I I will also assert that I think many people and maybe many many of our listeners, they may not be aware that that is an area of expertise you can have. Mm -hmm. The whole, there is the, you can be an expert in the idea of taking a question that gets asked to a human being on paper mm-hmm. and turning that question into data in a spreadsheet somewhere. That transfer is actually expertise, and that's the kind of expertise that we're talking about. Is that that's really the first step? Yeah, and that's the expertise that we're not training our students. Correct. Um, and we're not often our lab staff, people feel overwhelmed about how to train their lab staff in it. Because if you're a PI and you weren't trained in it, then how do you train your staff on it? And mm-hmm. the best that I can tell, there are no resources other than your talks online um, to to give to somebody to train them on it. Um, so at least they can yeah, listen to, to this podcast now. Yeah, <laughs> it's a good start anyway. <laughs> now you wanted, you have a list here of 10 principles. I do. And I I call them principles, but really it's just kind of like the 10 things I want to make sure we touch on if if we can get through 10 things today. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. And there's probably more because then we're going to get into it. We're going to be like, oh, and this, and this, and this. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's true. Um, So I think that most of the issues that we have with data management can be put under this umbrella of this first principle, which is document everything you can, everything possible. And it's one that I like to pithily say as make a rule, write it down, don't change it. I would almost extend that. Make a rule, write it down, don't change it for your whole career. If you can do it for your whole career, awesome. (laughs) You're like, it will make your job a lot easier. In this situation, like, so for example, uh, you're probably, okay, I'm going to talk about an example here. Let's say you have, uh, I do a lot of mail questionnaires, right? So I interact with Mm -hmm. um, families through the mail typically. And, you know, you, it is remarkable that if you give somebody the option to answer a question on a piece of paper, how they will um, find other ways to answer that question. And a good one is you're like, (laughs) Like, I'm a quantitative scientist, you know, I ask for numeric values, and they will find ways to put ranges into mm-hmm. the answer. You're like, no, no, I just want to know, you know, how many people live in your home? And they're like, two to three. And you're like, what the, what am I supposed to do with that? <laughs> what am I supposed to do with that? <laughs> it's not usually that. But then, so there's, and then you have your data enterers sitting there, got the piece of paper in front of them, and they're like, the answer is not a, a whole number. It's a range. What should I enter? And you have mm-hmm. to pick as a PI, as a lab, I try to pick, this is what we do in this circumstance. It's always the lowest value or it's always the highest value. 
Or I've seen sometimes this is not, the, this is maybe a little clunkier. It's the middle value. It's whatever is in the mm-hmm. mid, mid. But, you know, like this is what we do across the board. No matter what variable we're talking about, no matter what data collection I'm talking about, this is what we do in my lab. Only one of those numbers can be entered. This is going to be it. It will always be this one. Yeah. And this is where the intersection of expertise in data mm-hmm. in data and expertise in your area mm-hmm. becomes so important. Because that decision alone of what to do in an instance where a parent has marked two different options, mm-hmm. that decision alone can fundamentally change the signal that you're trying to pick up on. You're right. And so that that is where you gave a really good example of you need a rule, you need to write the rule down somewhere, you need to never change it, always apply it in every instance that you possibly can. So you want the rule to be as broad as possible so that it can apply uh, apply in many situations. Because you don't want to say, if on the income question they answer two and three, then you yeah. have to take the average of them. And if on the uh, race question they select this and this, then you have to do X. And if on this other question they – so you have if you have lots and lots of rules, it's harder to apply them. And a data, yeah, data entry nightmare. And your data enters are going to make lots of mistakes. And we're going to talk about the importance of double entry. And then you have lots of fixing of the data entry mistakes afterwards because Mm -hmm. it's very easy for a human to forget all those rules. Absolutely. So a protocol is what what I use around uh, Mm -hmm. the the active data collection projects that I work on. We use these things called, we call them protocols. It's just like a list of the rules that we uh, we make as we go. And those protocols are, we have lots of them. I mean, they start with who's in the study, who, what's your inclusionary criteria, what's mm-hmm. your exclusionary criteria, which measures did you give, when did you give them? I mean, it's everything you possibly can do all the way down to your day, sort of data entry rules. Mm-hmm. So making those rules is really, making those rules as transparent as possible so that anybody who comes on board can read them and understand them um, is is. Probably the most important rule. If you take home nothing else from this podcast today. The the first rule of rules? The rule of rules. Make a rule, write it down, don't change it, apply it as much as you can. Including always make a rule. Always make a rule. (laughs) Always make a rule. Never make a random decision on the fly. Don't do it. And then You are only hurting yourself. And then you don't write it down. You forget about it. And a year later, you're like, did we already make a decision on this? And then you make a different decision because nobody wrote it down. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden, you have this weird random error in the data entry step. And then you've already had humans fill out, do the behavioral stuff to start with, and they're already introducing error into your data. And then now you have somebody, now you're doing it, enter it. Anyway. Yeah. Now you don't have any signal. You only have noise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, <laughs> we spiraled out of control we pretty got, quickly we there, like, didn't we? Okay, we're going to come back. <laughs> Okay, so your primary goal, you know, any, it's going to happen and it will be, it's hard for us to get, like, I won't even tell people what you should do if you have a range of values or multiple values on a Likert scale, because it's based on you and what your lab and your knowledge of what's the more conservative choice or not, or what feels right to you. So we're not going to tell you what to do, but realize that this stuff's going to come up and um, you want to have it written someplace. Uh, and it's probably good to have some sort of lab manual or protocol, as you call it, that can apply to the project that stays with the project and the data of the mm-hmm. project, but also lives in the lab uh, mm-hmm. and, and and dictates what's happening in the lab. Mm. Across, yes. Across projects. Yeah. The the other pithy thing I love to say mm. about about protocols is that every project, you know, you want to write stuff down because every project is always going to have two collaborators mm-hmm. at the very minimum. And that's you. And you next week. Uh-huh. I got to tell you. <laughs> or next year. You won't remember what I... you decided to do or why you decided to do it. You just won't. I spent some time trying to decide if my memory issues are due to having a child and some sort of like biochemical <laughs> like fuck up of my brain. <laughs> Age. Mm-hmm. Just advancement in a career and lots of things happening at one time. Mm-hmm. Um, or who knows what else or some sort of interaction between those things. The, those things. But... My memory is not so hot anymore. Let's just say that. <laughs> I would not depend on my memory for anything, as it turns out, which is why right now I'm looking at my desk and it's piles of random pieces of paper <gasps> with oh, right wow. with with written notes on it. Yeah. Hopefully none of them are rules about data entry. No. That's <laughs> 
<laughs> you you actually thought about it. I did. Like, I was like, oh, I God, hope, I hope not. But it- no, I'm like all the data entry that's happening in my lab right now has been going for the last few years. So yeah, <laughs> nothing, nothing new that I had to write down on a piece of paper since COVID. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, and I, I think as you're doing more and more of these, the rules become like the rules become the way that you survive. Without the rules, you won't survive. Um, and so then the the next piece of this is how do you decide what you even write down? Like, well, do I really need to write this down? Yes. All of yes, it. you do. All of it. Write it down. <laughs> so I think I, I consider my protocols through an active project. They're living documents. Mm-hmm. So um, anything beyond like that, the rule that you just talked about, sort of a global rule, but um, sometimes you'll find things that don't necessarily fit. Like what if you have three? You had a rule that involved having two uh, things, mm-hmm. but now you have three. Or you have someone who circled one, but then they wrote in the margins something else. Mm. Those are all rules to do. Yeah, they do that all the time, uh. don't they? They're all rules that have to do with the same idea, but they're slightly different variations of them. So you want to have the rule that can apply in the most situations. Mm-hmm. Um, and then sometimes it takes a lot of brain power and thinking to figure out how the rule applies to this particular situation. Um, so the one that I think is uh, the sort of most, it seems like it should be innocuous, but is obnoxious is exclusionary criteria and inclusionary criteria. So like if your inclusionary criteria is uh, I need to have teachers who had at least four kids in their classroom. That was my inclusionary criteria. Okay. Well, I have a teacher they've enrolled. And then on day one, (laughs) <laughs> After I've signed them up, two kids drop out of their class, and now they have two kids in their classroom. Uh-huh. Do they stay in? Do they stay in? Do they not stay in? So you have to make the inclusionary definition specific enough that you know exactly why it applies in every situation. And it won't be specific enough at first because people are humans and we do weird things that don't align with rules. <laughs> so we have to think about how the rule applies in every situation. I have a logistics question because I'm sure probably listeners are, you know, looking for logistics. How do you keep these protocols? That's a good question. So for for the projects that I'm involved in, I have a folder in like a box drive mm-hmm. or a Dropbox sort of situation. I have a folder with protocols in it. And each one is a separate like Word document basically okay. that lists the the rules. For each one. So like I have one for inclusionary and exclusionary criteria. I have one for recruitment procedures. I have one for assessment administration order, one for how project staff are trained, one for how we communicate with participants, one for ID schemes, one for data entry. So that I have separate ones for each relevant topic. How many of them there are varies by project depending on the size and the scope. Um, but that's that's how I have them. Okay. And then anytime a question comes up, we have, you know, a participant who's that weird situation where somebody dropped out. Well, are they considered to be in the study? Let's pull up the inclusionary criteria and make sure that this applies. So that's the key is that they're living documents that you continue to refer back to. Yeah, because if it doesn't apply, if your inclusionary criteria or exclusionary criteria don't make it clear, then you make that decision. Usually we I call it like round table it. You know, uh, come to the best decision you can make at that time, write it then in your protocol document, and it will apply from there on into the forward. It forward. Yes. Mm-hmm. Ooh, I love that round table it. That's what I say. We do that for it when there's data entry inconsistencies too that we can't make a decision on. I call it let's round table it and get a group of minds together and come to a, a mutual decision. That's such a good term for it. I love that. And then document that. In your protocol. Yeah. (laughs) So that you're able to apply it in the next situation. Okay. So those are rules. That's our rules. Our rules set up. Now, one rule that is really important that I want to make sure we talk about, which is our next, our number two on this list, Mm -hmm. which is ID variables. Uh, Why do we need to talk about ID variables, Jessica? Dr. Logan, is there something about ID variables that's particularly confusing? And the answer is apparently yes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just yelled so loud. You start at zero and you count up, guys, or 100. I actually prefer 100. I have no reason, but every project that I have starts at 100. That's great. Good idea. You can use ID variables to 
convey information if you want to. Like the first digit can be the year in which somebody was recruited or the month or Mm -hmm. the site at which you recruited them. Um, You can use them to convey information, but guess what? You have to have a rule. You have to write it down and you have to not change it. Now, when I say don't change it, the thing about ID variables is that sometimes people are tempted to have them convey information like what time point the data were collected Uh at. Don't do that because every ID variable needs to represent a unique noun, a unique person, place, or thing that you're measuring multiple times, perhaps. Mm -hmm. If you're measuring a person, a place, or a thing multiple times, don't give them a new ID variable each time because then you can't link their data together. That person always has the same ID. That school always has the same ID. Correct. Or I guess, nope. Nope. Always. Oh, I know always, but I'm like, people are going to feel real compelled and like, but I have a key to link them. I mean, that's like a a necessary extra step. Like, why do it? Have the same number. Have the same number. And make it a number. Um, Make it a number. Make it a number. And you make it, I mean, we can get really, really in the weeds here, but you want it less than 12 digits. Yeah. And preferably digits, which makes it unique and identifiable. Um, and will transfer to multiple programs. But um, I have so many horror stories about ID schemes and about people sort of changing. I Like if your ID somehow has the person's age in it and then it changes when oh. the person changes ages and then you can't link people together anymore. And so that's um, – that's It not, also that's runs the risk depending – you have to think about your number system because if you get – sometimes I get a little fancy. So like in twin projects, right, we have a family number, the family mm-hmm. ID, right? So the family has a, an ID number. And each twin within the family has an ID number. So you have like the first three digits are the family and then the next two are the kid or something yeah, like that? Yeah, like so one it's and like two. 100, 01, 100, 02. Uh-huh. And then 101, 01, 101, 02. So you can get fancy uh-huh. like that. But you have to realize that you got to like do the math a little bit to be like, as we go go up, is it possible to repeat other numbers? Because we're thinking about what's really actually one number, but we're thinking about it as two parts. Uh, and sometimes you can like do weird things where you repeat an ID number later on um, if you got real fancy with breaking up the number into identifiable pieces, like, uh, sorry, that pieces that have information within the number. So yeah, you could do that, but then also you could accidentally, if you're like messing around with the numbers, you know, give somebody's ID number to a new person. Oh God, be careful. No, don't recycle ID numbers. Yeah. Oh, that teacher dropped out of the study. So we're just... You know, it's going to be gonna a real, reassign that ID. It's going to be a real pain if that ID number is blank and the person drops out. You know, it, does, it is dead to you. 102 Leave is it blank. dead to you. Yeah, 102 does not exist. No, does not exist. And Move on to 103. What that means is you are correct. If you have 157 participant numbers, like your last participant is number 157, it will be the case that you don't necessarily have just 57 participants. Because you yes. could have lost somebody up before, but you're not filling in that number. Mm-mm. Nope. Mm-hmm. It's a, it, it lived with a person and it will forever be with that person, even if that person decides to not be in your study anymore. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to add one more thing here, which I think is probably what we should have said first. Oh, okay. Which is every participant in your study should have a unique identifier. Oh, mm-hmm. That's a nice, clear way to put it. Yes. <laughs> Rather than my, whatever I just did. <laughs> well, I think... Uh, not necessarily. I mean, I don't think, I think they're different. I think this is, this is, um, you know, I've worked with people in the past. Sometimes people will call me after they've collected their data and say, help me analyze it. That happens to me a lot. Um, and then I had an instance once where someone said, I just want to know if I'm going to make up constructs, if self-efficacy of these first graders is related to their vocabulary scores. And so I said, okay, well, Sure, you could just do a correlation. We can correlate those. But they had not collected unique identifiers for each person. Mm-hmm. So they had a hundred vocabulary scores and a hundred self-efficacy scores, and they didn't have any way to match them mm-hmm. because they hadn't identified a score with a person. And, and it broke my heart. It honestly broke my heart because it was just like, oh I, there you can't there's nothing you can't do anything. You can't do anything. And I, I did, I did have someone say in that situation once, "Well, why don't I just put them in order 
mm-hmm. and put the two lowest scores together and then the two next lowest scores together and so on up. Oh, that's going to create a beautiful correlation. It will be a beautiful correlation <laughs> that does not represent reality in any shape, form, or fashion. Nope. So I want to underscore the importance of giving every person a unique identifier of some sort and making sure that every piece of information you collect about that person is associated with the ID. I I don't know if this is going to be on the list, but I'll introduce a related topic with IDs is that um, the IDs to identifiable information. Mm, Are we okay. going to talk about that linking? Like, uh, yeah. Nope. Okay. Go do it here. So, um, uh, right. The key with what was the problem with that person's data is that they didn't have the identifiable information anymore. So they couldn't go back to figure out whose data was it and re-enter it and do the IDs properly. Um, and so that's pretty common, uh, because, you know, everyone's like, well, you know, you got to get rid of identifiable information eventually, according to your IRB. Um, so I want, I, oh, this is not the greatest introduction to this. Let me take a step back. Oh, so, wait, wait, wait. I know what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. You go, go ahead. Okay. So what I'm trying to say is we're going to create these identifiers. The reason why we have numeric identifiers is because we don't want to use people's names in the data set, right? You have eventually, you know, your data set has to be de-identified. And I would say that we think that good practice, I think at least good practice, I I bet you agree, is that um, the data that's getting entered into data sets could start from the beginning as de-identified and just by by, uh, participant ID. So like Mm -hmm. You wouldn't enter and let's say you have a data enter entering in data from a paper packet. You know, you had testers go into classrooms and they've administered a battery or going into parents' homes and administered a battery on paper. Uh, then they come back. You know, you don't, I and my lab don't enter in the child's name or the parent's name and then all of their data. We enter in their ID variable that has been assigned to that family before the tester even goes into the field. Uh, and that ID variable then stays with that family or that child or parent or whatever level of noun we're talking about. Uh, but it's somewhere else we have a linking key, right? And this is an even more secure data set that usually exists just on the date, the project manager's computer or something like that, that links the names to the IDs because that's how you know what ID is assigned to what individual, what individual person or classroom or school or whatever it is. Um, and uh, that key, it's called a key, at least according to American IRBs, that's the linking key. Um, you can have that throughout your project, but eventually it will likely be the case that you destroy that linking key. And then you'll never be able to recover who the people were that are underlying these individual ID variables. But you, but don't get rid of it yet. Oh, no. That's, that's, yeah, that's like the Way, way, way past. But you're right. Yeah, yeah. That wasn't a, that wasn't a well thought out principle I just introduced. <laughs> I I figured out what you were saying, so I had that later on, but I, I scooted it up here to just call I I call that a, a master list or a linking key. Yeah. Okay. So with the with the master list or the linking key, it's really how you're keeping track of who's in your study, where they are, who they are, how you get hold of them, um, and uh, how you identify them, and how that's associated with the ID number that you've assigned to them. And so the nice thing about having a list like this is that it stays separate from any data that you're collecting and uh, for the most part, so that you're able to move on. Now, if you're collecting actively in schools, oftentimes I'll send assessors into the field with a list of ID numbers and names that have a linking list because they have to be able to go into a classroom and say, uh, Maya, are you here? Mm-hmm. Maya, I need to see you. Come with me, Maya, so that they have the right kid associated with the right ID number. Um, so you do need that linking list and you have to refer to it quite a bit. And it's a way that you can sort of keep track of who's in your study and uh, as they sort of move through it and make sure that everything is associated with one number always. And the fewer times you can enter it, the better. Oof. That's a whole other thing. Okay, hang on. Let me move to the next thing I have here, which is uh, I scooted this up, but I'm not ready for it. Next thing I have here is, I'll do it anyway, tracking participation. So let's, because I think that sort of leads through from the master list or the var- variable key or the master key, linking key, is that 
in longitudinal sorts of research, which we often have, or even in non-longitudinal research, cross-sectional research, but where you have a lot of measures on a particular person, you need to sort of keep track of who's responding, whether they've gotten all of their measures completed, and if you're monitoring over time, whether they're dropping out over time or whether they're staying with your study. And so we can track that stuff using the master list and uh, as, as one way to do it. And then you can, I, I highly recommend this thing called a consort diagram, and mm-hmm. we'll link you in the in the show notes. And the consort diagram is a framework on which you can hang how many people are in your study and how they move through um, through time. So here's my my hypothetical example here is if I have emailed this survey out to a thousand people and six hundred people clicked my link and said, "Okay, sure, I'll participate." But then a hundred of them actually didn't meet my eligibility criteria. Because, you know, I need you to be, to speak English well enough to take the survey or something. And so they, a hundred of them didn't pass my screening criteria. But then 50 of those participants, even though they met the screening criteria, then they don't actually start the survey. And then I have another 50 people who started to complete it, but then they drop out partway through the middle. The consort diagram provides you with a framework of how to document each of those steps so you can see where people are dropping out, where they're getting lost, so you can understand who's in the study. And it's a really beautiful, I just, I really like figures too. And it gives you a really nice figure to represent who's in your study and how, and how they go through. And I think that that's, that's the simplest possible scenario. That's a one shot, one survey. Um, and it gets even more complicated as you mm-hmm. think about multiple waves. Mm-hmm. Now, concert was designed for uh, multi-wave randomized control trials, but you can absolutely apply it in just about any situation. Okay, so that's participation tracking. Um, The next thing I have here for us to talk about is variable names. Why do we care about variable names, you might say? Uh, Well, I'll just start by saying that the, the, the principle that guides variable names here is that you need to name variables uniquely mm-hmm. and consistently. Mm-hmm. So you want to name them uniquely means every variable needs to have its own name that's not the same as any other variable. And consistently means if you have, uh, if you've given the same measure twice, for example, it should have the same name both times, either with a variation in it or the same name both times. If you have a long data set, you just have it the same name and then mm-hmm. you have another variable representing time point. Mm-hmm. So that's my, my big principle. And the decision about how you name the variable guess what you should do with it? You should write it down. <gasps> Maybe in the, the protocol of rules that you have? In the protocol, and then don't change it. <laughs> yeah, and we, yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say, as part of our data repository grant, we're actually creating a list of like the most common batteries in our field and giving suggestive variable names. We would like to suggest that the field uses the same oh. variable names, not just the PI or the project <sighs> But the field, if you are that using would be so awesome. the Woodcock-Johnson, you know, tests of achievement, here are the variable names you should do. You don't even have to think about it. There, Here they are. That would be wonderful. It would also take away a lot of the thought process that people have to put into deciding how to name their variables. Mm-hmm. Because variable names, they matter for usually the, the data user at the end, right? Yeah. But you have to think about them at the start of your project. Um, well, at least at the point where your data somehow is going to become electronic. So that either happens if you're programming Qualtrics or something like that. God, God forbid. Do not let Qualtrics do the default variable names. Take the time oh. and change the variable names in Qualtrics. Because that V1, V2, underscore 316 is going to drive you crazy afterwards. You um, won't know what any of it is. No. So it's either happening then you're programming an electronic program like Qualtrics to collect data for you and you need to give it variable names then, or you're doing paper data collection and at some point you're going to have to create the data entry screens or the software or the protocol that you're going to enter that somehow the data is going to become electronic. Uh, And I would recommend a program that's not simply like Excel, 
there are specialty programs that can do it for, you know, that help data entry in better ways than that, um, than Excel, but in columns in Excel, uh, <laughs> or similarly columns in SPSS. Uh, but uh, you will have to think about variable names closer to the start of your project, although the ramification of what your decisions are will be felt at the end of your project. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I, we'll do data entry here in a second to get into a little bit more, but the the idea that we're trying to, I think, cement into, into heads <laughs> is that the decisions you make at the beginning of the project can really set yourself up for success mm-hmm. or misery later. And it might be faster to go, yes, Qualtrics, just make up variable names, whatever. But the number of hours that you will spend oh. going back and forth between seven screens trying to figure out what the heck C2 underscore 3715B I will is. Ad- I will admit, I have not been cut. Ki- Past Sarah has not been kind to present Sarah on many occasions. I brought up Qualtrics because that tends to be the place that I'm like, it'll be fine. I'll figure it out later. And every time I'm like, why did, why did I do this to myself? Those variable names are awful. They're not even in the order of the questions and the que- It's the order that you make the question. It's brutal. The order, yes. I, just to, to reiterate there, it's the order that you have, that you wrote the questions and added them to the survey, yeah. not the order that they're presented. Yeah, so that, that doesn't even out. have that to help you out. You oh. can't even check. There's yeah. no way to check. No. Oh. It's miserable. Now, it's do you miserable. have, okay, so we're saying have nice variable names. Do you have a rule of thumb for how you write your variable names? I do. So I like to do variable names that have the first three or four characters represent the survey that it comes from or the the um, test that it comes from. So if I'm giving the PPVT, the first four would be PPVT. That's easy. Um, so that and that can sort of range. So like for WJ, I'll start with WJ. So WJ letter word ID is WJLW. Mm-hmm. So I have those those rules. And then what comes after that is either the item number. Mm-hmm. So like item 0001, uh, four characters for those, or it's uh, like sum score or standard score, something like that. So I have number of characters within a variable name that's set aside um, to do each job so that it's easy as an analyst to go in and determine what's what and what goes with what. Key things that you just mentioned in that naming system is you don't mm. start with a number because nope. many analytical programs hate that. They actually can't analyze. Yeah. They yeah. won't know what to do. Yeah. So you don't start your variable name with a number, but you do te- end your variable name with a number if there's item or something similar. You know, like if you have, if if there is a number that's important to, to record in the variable name, like item number, have mm-hmm. it towards the end because um, that makes a data analyst happier. There's like coding reasons why that's easier to deal with if the mm-hmm. item number is at the end, not buried then. I have on occasion done a number and then like tacked on like an A or B for certain like waves or something like that. And I always kick myself because then you can't do a range in your code. Um, so, so so much harder. If you have a number that matters, end it with the number if it's like a, a numerical order. And don't start your variable with a number. Don't do weird characters in your variable names. Mm-hmm. No decimals, and, things like that. And one of my example horror stories here is a data set that I've worked with where the person making up variable names, you know, they, they collected a new wave of data, like three different waves of data. So like cohort A, cohort B, cohort C in three different years. Mm-hmm. And each year they re came up with new variable names. And it didn't have a, a core variable name that stayed the same? It didn't have a core variable name that stayed the same. It's like year one, it was PPVT. And year two, it was PVT. And three was yeah. like Peabody or whatever the... Uh-huh. It was like for. Peabody, exactly. And then, and it was like, it, I mean, it, I lost an entire year of my life trying to figure out what, what the heck was going on with this dang data set. So keep it consistent. If you, if you have, if you're collecting data and you intend to collect it in a long format, in a long format, I just mean that you'd have the PPVT that you're going to collect three times for a single person, but you're going to name it. It's always called PPVT. You just have another variable that uniquely identifies which wave it is. Mm-hmm. That's a, a long data set. Then 
you can have them in separate data files all you want, but the variable name should be the same in all three of those files mm-hmm. because it represents the same like physical measure that you're giving. Now, if you're collecting it in a wide format, so you want to have all three of them as separate variables in the same data set, then you can introduce a character or a number, something that represents the wave mm-hmm. within the somewhere in the middle. So usually I would do that as like PPVT one and then item number, for example. So if you're doing that, again, the wave piece of that or the the data collection point goes in the middle of your variable so that you can use the ranges like we talked about. And then, but everything else about it should be the same. So it all follows the rule. Yeah. My general... I so I I differ just slightly from you. I don't necessarily put it in the middle. I put I use a a, a letter and put it at the front of the variable name, and sometimes two letters. So oh. where I've done two is you know I collect families worth of data, right? Kids and parents, mm-hmm. and so they all get the PBVT. So that's the base, right? PBVT is the and then like maybe like some score like SS PBVT SS or something like that. That's the 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 main variable. And then if it's collected on father, then an F gets attached to the front of that. Or mother, an M gets attached to the front of it. And then if it's in wave one, then an A gets attached on top of that. And Or if it's wave two, a B gets attached onto that. And then I add in another layer of complexity. If I ever do as a coder, this might be too much, but as a coder, if I ever make a transformation to that variable, then I add an N to the very beginning of that so that I know it's that variable, but I've transformed it somehow. Huh. You know, So um, though that's the slight difference for me. I put it towards the beginning, but always because I use uh, um, letters and not numbers. That's why I can go at the front. Interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. I, like I, I think, again, we're not trying to prescribe how no. you do things. We're trying to prescribe that you make a rule and you, you write it down it. and you don't change it. And make your variable names descriptive. Easy for somebody to come into your data that doesn't know anything about your data and have a fighting chance to figure out what that <laughs> variable is. And the the other piece of this that I think is important to mention is that we, we talked about this in the data sharing episode and in our, in our paper, is that you can create something called a data dictionary, mm-hmm. which is a list of the variable names and the variable uh, um like a description of what the variable is and then all of the possible range of values that you can possibly have. And all of that goes into one sort of spreadsheet document that's easily referenced and transferable. You will save yourself a ton of time with a data dictionary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the last piece about variable names. And then I want to briefly talk about variable values. Yes. So variable values, what do I mean variable values? I mean, if you have something like uh, oh, one of my favorite examples of this is, uh, you know, you have a scale, like a Likert sort of scale that goes ranges from one to seven or something. Mm-hmm. Make sure you're writing down what each of those options is, because sometimes they they can vary in between your different um, examples. Um, that is not my favorite option. I don't know why I started it that way. What I was going to try to say is that the... Uh, you know, something like a uh, male, female, or mother, father might be one that you'd have in there. So you'd be able to sort of mark out which one is which, which value corresponds to which thing. Um, so when you're entering things like that numerically, one of them is going to be coded as a zero, and one of them is going to be coded as a one, or they might be coded as a one and a two. Mm-hmm. And it's really important that you make a rule and write it down and don't change it. Whatever that rule is about how you're coding variables, <laughs> variable values. I'm just going to say that over and over again, I think. And you go as, well, you go as far as to say in those circumstances, it shouldn't just be zero and one, one being male, zero being female, but instead, the var- and, and then the variable name is, you know, gender. You yeah. say instead the variable name should be female, Zero and one, yes or no, with one being yeah, yes. Yeah, I call this. I call this the. Um, you know, that's if you've coded gender dichotomously. But yeah. So the example I like to give is, if you have a, a a house house color and you have two options for house color, it's either red or it's green. Those are the two options you've given people. This is a terrible item. Never give this item to anyone. 
But if your options are red and green on house color, and you've named it house color, then when you go to analyze your data every single time, you're going to go, which one was one? Mm-hmm. Every time. Was it one and two? Or was it one and zero? Was one red? Or was two red? Was zero? I don't remember. Every time. But if you name it house green, and if house is green, then it equals one. Then you always know that one is house green. And my assertion is that the other one should be zero. Mm -hmm. If you want to use other coding schemes, you want to get into effects coding schemes and things like that, recode your variables all you want. But in terms of just documenting your data at base, sort of base factory settings of data, have it zero and one where one is the category of yes, this is present. It will save you so much time and energy and, and stress. And I'll go even further to say that you you should be thinking about your variable values in the set, that intuitive way in all ways. So like, if I don't care if your scale publishes the scale that goes from not at all to a lot, and the values are seven to one, where seven should equal the not at all, and the one should equal a lot. <gasps> I don't care what? that it says that on the paper. I don't care. I think you should reverse that and make it intuitive that higher scores mean more of that thing. That, I mean, science backs you up on that one. Because I I mean, I myself have a correction to a paper because of that very thing that still hurts me when I think about it. Because I had a variable coded higher equaled less of. And as I was yeah. doing the analyses, I could only remember that based on the paper, right? Because I had already, once you're an anal- analyst and you're in a data set, you're not taking a look at the original scale. You don't remember what the values are the same way. Um, and so you're like higher and more intuitive. Higher is more. More of that thing. Higher of that thing. Uh-huh. So I would dare to say that you should make sure your values are like that. That's a very interesting, that's a compelling story. Um, I had had another story like that, which was a a retraction in JAMA, Mm -hmm. which is, which happened last year in 2019, Mm -hmm. where someone, the analyst was expected, it was like the variable was called treatment and it was coded one and zero. And uh, the analyst thought it was treatment of one meant you had the treatment and treatment zero meant you were the control group, but in fact, it was the opposite. So they published a whole paper that was, look, our treatment is effective. It worked. When in fact the treatment actually harmed the participants within that that study, and that it hurts, me. It hurts, it hurts me. so much. It's just like it's these little it's little things where we you you have the possibility to if you've coded these things consistently and you've named them consistently, you can really avoid a lot of these issues and problems. Okay, so that's variable values, mm-hmm. um, except for one thing. Okay, which is. One other variable value, which is, I think, the last thing we're going to have time for, because we're a little verbose about this stuff, (laughs) turns out. The the last thing, the last variable value to talk about is how you've kept or kept track of missingness. So one value for your variable might be a missing value. Now, if you're an avid R user, that variable value will be NA. NA just always represents missingness in, um, in R. In some projects, some people like to keep track of this um, in multiple ways. You have all kinds of different missing values that people will put in, things like negative 99 and negative 999 and um, negative 97. Uh, What I – those have pros and cons. Mm -hmm. As a person who picks up data to analyze often, I will – First step. First step, exactly. Write some code to get rid of all those negative 99s. That's the very first thing that I do. Sometimes I miss one. Yes. And then I get real confused about why <laughs> nothing mm-hmm. correlates mm-hmm. or the distribution looks so weird. What is that really weird value that's negative 80? <laughs> why oh. is my predicted score on this negative 247? Yeah. I started a little bit of a Twitter war about missing values because it is my opinion that those codes are completely unnecessary. Mm. And I think that 
some people um, like RCT people convinced me that the missing values can be useful to know when people dropped out. Now, that being said, if you had that good consort diagram tracking participants, then you don't need to use those missing variables because you know what happens with those missing variable, those missing value variables? They always make mistake. People don't know they're there and they do analyses and they don't realize they're there. They don't do distribution checks and stuff and look for their values the range of values to make sure they make sense because they got what they thought was a clean data set and they analyze those missing values. Because you know what? Negative 99 is a real number. It is a real number. It will, turns out. We'll go into an analysis. And so, no, you know, I... The, <laughs> I like to say a lot that uh, uh, the the statistics program doesn't know where the data come from, right? No. They don't, it doesn't it know. Just knows it just it's does what it's told. They're like, oh, look, here's a few negative 99s. That's weird. Oh, it doesn't even say that's weird. I'm sorry. It's just like, it just says the mean is. Here we go. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I contest at least. And I understand this might be controversial position. It's just, I'm so used to my very first step of a code after I bring in a data set is to immediately search and change all missing variable values sorry yeah missingness values to system missing mm-hmm. um that's just like don't even enter it don't mm-hmm. even enter it because you know what that's so, like hard for data enterers to keep track of as well what is why is the reason why this variable is missing Ugh. the only time that i have found them helpful is when i do planned missingness designs oh. so i have planned missingness designs where i deliberately don't give assessments to some participants, which is um, mm-hmm. another fun episode. We can talk about what plan missingness designs are. But so you can deliberately not give items to people, in which case the missingness that you're evaluating, it's it's harder to detect unless you have it marked in some way. So I can say 20% of this is missing by design. Another 5% is missing for other reasons. Okay. So sometimes I'll keep I'll it in for that. those reasons. I'll give you that. But I don't know if the benefit outweighs the cost. Oh. It's, that's worth asking. You know, my re- probably reviewer too will think that I definitely need to keep those missing variable <laughs> codes in. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the other piece I have in here is exception codes, uh, which is just if you have people who've dropped out of the study, you might have a specific variable that represents this person is now gone. And if you have that variable or this person is part of the planned missingness and won't get some items. So if you can have a code that's that, then that can take the place of needing missingness values for each individual measure. So that's really useful. Because you're not going to put that variable into an analysis in five years from now when you forgot what, what your missing variable values were. That's true. And the other thing about missing, one, one more thing about missingness values that I want to point out, which is please don't use zero. So a lot, I think people sometimes will will think oh. if this is missing, I'll just code it as as zero. I'll put a zero in in place of it, and it it seems like a good idea. I can totally see where you're coming from, mm-hmm. but it's so much harder to see. And if you have people who really truly can score zero, you can't tell. Then the you don't. You can't tell the difference exactly. You can't tell the difference between who's gotten a zero because they actually got no answers right, and who's gotten a zero because they didn't complete the measure. So. If you want to use a missing variable code, which I understand, you want to look at a nice, full, complete, done data set that looks like all the cells are filled or something like that. Totally makes sense. Go for it. Use a missing variable code, but don't make it zero. Make it something else. Okay, so that was, again, with missingness, you want to make a rule and write it down. Don't change it. Apply it as much as you can. As often as possible. And with that, I think we're going to end because we have, I think that's seven or eight that we got through today. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll have another another part about the additional steps of data. So this is this has all been sort of like getting the data into a spreadsheet. That's what we've really talked about so far is getting the data into the place that it can be analyzed. And so from there, there's other things that we'll do. And we'll talk about the, the next steps. Well, other than data time. entry, right? That's going to be our big one next time too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's actually literally getting the data into a spreadsheet. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying. I was going to try to let you just have it. I was going to let you have it. I was like, <laughs> other than data entry, which we're going to talk about next time. That's and literally, <laughs> literally getting data into a spreadsheet. <laughs> so more preparing to get data into a spreadsheet is where we've gone. You're right. So we're, we're You know what? All of this can be done with blank empty data sets. 
you can have all of these rules with a data set that's empty. Apply your variable values, your missingness, all of that can be set up in advance of you ever collecting a drop of data. Yeah. yeah okay. That works. Now, now I, I got to I got to You got this. it. You got it. <laughs> Tune in next time and we will do the second half of our data management series as it turns out we needed to. Thanks for listening to this episode of Within and Between. For information about this and all our episodes, you can visit our website, withinandbetweenpod.com. Connect with us on Twitter at within underscore between, where you can send us questions about developmental science and developmental sciencing. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>